You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are delighted today in our 119th episode of the Coronavirus Crisis Update to welcome Dr. Peter Kilmarks. Peter, thank you so much for making time for us today. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Andrew. It's a, really a pleasure to be here. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, and I really appreciate your podcast and the work you're doing. Well, thank you for that. We love having you. Thank you. Peter is the Deputy Director of the Fogarty International Center at the National Institutes of Health, where we've gotten to know each other quite well there over the last several years. We first met actually in in the early naught decade when Peter was running the CDC shop in Botswana and the PEPFAR program, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief was being launched. And we've remained in close contact over those two decades. Peter is an MD. He's filled many leadership roles in CDC over the years and at NIH now, and he's a rear admiral retired in the U.S. Public Health Service. Very, very distinguished career and highly productive. So thank you, Peter, for being with us. I want to start with a personal question to you. Since early in this pandemic, contact tracing, it's been very evident to many of us, is is a very deep and abiding personal passion for you. You became super active early on and you used your expertise and your commitment to mobilize a quite a, an array of constituents across the country who had some stake in the notion of effective contact tracing, isolation, quarantine, and the like, when people were really thinking a lot about, about these requirements in our ability to control the pandemic, and you've done an enormous amount. Where does this come from? How did you get this passion? And, and looking back, what do you think your efforts achieved? Well, thanks, Steve. And really, I've I've been aware for a long time about the effectiveness of contact tracing for controlling infectious diseases in general. During my own infectious diseases training at Johns Hopkins in the 1990s, I was able to accompany some of the public health staff in Baltimore going out doing their contact tracing for tuberculosis and syphilis. And then as the the CDC team leader in Sierra Leone in 2014, I saw how contact tracing in quarantine were really instrumental in stopping the Ebola transmission in West Africa. And so for COVID-19, the the contact tracing really does slow the spread. It lets people know they've been exposed and they should monitor their health for signs and symptoms. It helps them to go ahead and get tested. And then they should isolate themselves if they test positive and then should quarantine themselves to prevent transmission to others in case they develop COVID-19. In the early weeks of the outbreak, going back two years, we heard about contact tracing being used very effectively in Asia. And Taiwan may have one of the strongest systems, uh, contact tracing systems. The the vice president at the time, Chen Qianzhen, he's actually has a degree in public health and epidemiology from Johns Hopkins. And he credited, continues to credit contact tracing as the single most effective component of their COVID-19 response. And so to date in Taiwan, they've only had 36 deaths per million population. While in the US, our mortality rate has been 75-fold higher, over 2,700 deaths per million population. 
You know, when we look at the United States performance, you've just given us some pretty stark numbers. It seems pretty clear the U.S. has failed miserably, with a few exceptions, to make contact tracing a national priority and to build effective capacities across the country. We'll talk in a few minutes about some of the things that were instituted early in the Biden administration with the support of some of the major supplementals. So there are some strong exceptions to that. But as a general conclusion, is that a fair conclusion as we look back over these last two years? And if so, what are the root causes? So let me go back and, and say some more about what triggered my own interest in this is it actually came from learning about the Peace Corps volunteers being evacuated worldwide. 7,000 volunteers around the world all being brought back to the U.S. In, in March of 2020. And on the one hand, I could imagine them coming home, trying to find work during the greatest unemployment crisis in the country in generations. And then on the other hand, the worst public health crisis in a century, and I knew we needed tens of thousands of workers to implement these programs for testing, for contact tracing, social support, all, all of that. And it seemed like a no-brainer that we could establish, we called it a COVID-19 response corps, and it would include any of the evacuated Peace Corps volunteers, but also many others working in their own communities would be part of this. We knew we had to act quickly, and we knew that the state and local health departments they really don't have the resources or the hiring mechanisms and flexibilities to be able to do that. And so, you know, Steve, with your help, we, we did have a lot of early success. We had Congresswoman Susan Brooks from Indiana and Ami Vera from California. They wrote a commentary in April of 2020 calling for this, calling for a COVID-19 response corps as their roles in your CSIS commission on strengthening America's health security. And there were several congressional resolutions and bills introduced, letters to FEMA and Peace Corps and AmeriCorps that asked them to recruit volunteers into an expanded FEMA Corps. But unfortunately, these efforts weren't successful. We, we saw this similar kind of Hunger Games scenario that we feared with each jurisdiction trying to come up with their own solutions. Some were quite innovative and robust, but many others lagged behind and weren't able to hire enough staff for their workforce needs. So as you know, I've been keeping up with this. I've built up this email groups. I'm sending out news and policy and research on contact tracing. And it's just kind of snowballed. There's been a lot of interest from public health leaders. I've been sending them now. I started a couple of times a week, now about once a month. And almost every time people let me know how helpful the information is and how and ask for other people to be added to that. So it's I think it's kept contact tracing on the agenda. And it's really very intimately linked with this with this workforce issue. And so you're right, we have a public health workforce crisis in the country. There was a big hit taken in 2008. The public health staff numbers were cut with the financial crisis then and never really recovered. The number of contact tracers in the U.S. had fallen to only about 2,000 at the beginning of the, of the pandemic. And just for contact tracing alone, the estimates were that we needed as many as 100,000 staff nationwide, and some, some people were calling for 300,000 workers working on contact tracing. And we just haven't prioritized this. We haven't prioritized public health and prevention programs to the extent that we ex expend really an enormous amount of money on medical care and treatment. And this is compounded by our, our public health system, our federalized system that each state has to build their own public health workforce and at the same time, they have to balance their state budgets and have these limits 
you know, understood limits, but limits on hiring, bringing on permanent full-time employees. And then many states are home rule states. So it's actually at the county level where they're having to make these decisions and manage this. Peter, let me ask you this. What is the price that Americans are paying for these failures and for the lack of a public health workforce to really emerge? We're seeing we're only really making partial progress in this. We don't have really robust and timely data systems to track the workforce and the contact tracing results. So to some extent, we're flying blind on this. If we did have these national dashboards, we could see who was doing well and try to learn from them. We could see who's lagging behind and try to help them and hope that would motivate them to improve their performance. For a while, we had a, a private group that was tracking this, that they were looking at the numbers of staff working on contact tracing and the numbers of daily cases. And they had a formula of looking, trying to have five contact tracers per daily case at the state level and to see which states had sufficient numbers. They stopped doing that months ago, but very few states really had the capacity to be able to do this. There's also, there's metrics on contact tracing being collected by the CDC. So looking at the contact tracing timeliness and the contact tracing yield, the numbers of cases, the numbers of of contacts that are notified per case. These aren't being shared publicly, but they did have a report. It was a year ago with that information from the summer of 2020. And at that time, only a median of 57% of patients were being interviewed within 24 hours of the report of the case to to the health department, and a median of 55% of contacts were being notified within 24 hours of identification by the patient. So this is probably helping at the margins and helping in many individual cases, but that isn't the kind of impact that you need to have to have a significant effect on transmission. There's some jurisdictions doing better. New York City really prioritized contact tracing. They hired thousands of staff. And they have, a, they, they have a public dashboard, and up until the spread of Omicron, they were reporting about 90% of cases being reached and 75% of contacts. So we think it's had a much bigger impact in that kind of a situation. They're doing an epidemiological evaluation now, so we hope to see soon what the, what the impact has been in, in that kind of best-case scenario. Peter, the one, one aspect of contact tracing it seems to me is that if it's if it's begun and instituted early in an outbreak, people's confidence and trust in it will go up because they'll see the ability of this intervention to contain and arrest. And it it's a tool that allows you to keep schools open and to keep businesses open because it's something that people can point to and say, well, yes, we're going to have uh, clusters, and but we've got the capacity to chase them down and identify them and know where they are and do the sort of isolation and quarantining and verification that's needed and know who else has been exposed and needs to be notified and the like. But if the pandemic gets ahead of you, too far ahead of you, and it scales exponentially and very rapidly, you reach a point, we saw this with Ebola, I think we've seen this in the United States, where people sort of throw their hands up and say, well, you know, we've seen, seen and heard this during Omicron, which of course runs ahead of us at at extraordinary speed. And we hear today from many public health officials, but also many elected leaders across many different countries saying, okay, the transition is happening. We're moving into managing this. We're not trying to eradicate it. And we don't need to do contact tracing anymore. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it, it seems to me that the 
The, de the deck is stacked against advocates of contact tracing in a way. It remains a vitally important tool, but if you don't have it and the pandemic gets out ahead of you, you're in trouble. And then as you get to the let's move towards a new normal, you also get into a little bit of trouble in trying to remind people of how vitally important this is. Steve, you're, you're exactly right. You know, first, an example of where it really worked, I, I'll take New Zealand. They had a very effective initial response in 2000. Their, their contact tracing brought the time from the onset of illness to isolation. At first, it was 7.2 days in March of 2020. So people were walking around with COVID for seven days before they went into isolation. With the implementation of their testing and contact tracing, that went to minus 2.7 days. So people went, went into quarantine more than two days before they, they actually fell ill. The transmission went to zero. COVID went away. But some of the challenges we've had starts with the testing. You've got to have a very robust and timely testing system. The, the incubation period for COVID-19 is just a matter of days. And for it's just a few days for, for Omicron. So if you can't find a test or if it takes a week or even 48 hours to get the test result, it's really too late for the contact tracing to have a big impact. Another issue is that we don't have this very consistent social support for quarantine. So, you know, many of these cases, there's people living paycheck to paycheck. There's people living in group uh, crowded living conditions. They need an alternative in social support if you're going to tell them they've got to go into quarantine for a week or initially we were saying two weeks after they're exposed. Some jurisdictions could do that, but, but for many others, they really didn't provide that social support for effective contract tracing. So yes, clearly with Omicron, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of asymptomatic transmission. It's a very rapid time from exposure to transmission. And, and it's just overwhelming. The numbers, the testing is falling behind. And then the numbers are just overwhelming for this kind of manual person-to-person -person case investigation and contact notification. And this is, you know, this is recognized. Several of the leading public health organizations have communicated this. They're still recommending, it's, I think it's, we're calling it do-it-yourself contact tracing, that there's guidelines. And it's just, you know, common public health sense and common courtesy. If you come down with an illness, you come down with COVID-19, you, you take steps to, to get yourself tested. You let your contacts know they can get they can get tested and protect their contacts just by upping their physical distancing and mask wearing until they're out of the incubation period. So you know clearly in the midst of Omicron, because of how how transmissible it is and the overwhelming numbers, contact tracing isn't going to stop Omicron. But when numbers come back down, it will have more of a role in in actually driving numbers down further when it's more manageable when the testing can can catch up. And then there's a lot of special settings in group settings and in senior care facilities and in some school and, and child care centers. It's going to be very helpful to get this under control. Peter, you know, the, the larger context of all this is that just about every tool in the pandemic toolkit has become politicized over the past two years. Misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theory. What impact has that had on contact tracing? Yeah, it, it definitely has. And it, it's like some of the other tools and, and the trust issues that Steve was talking about. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm reading all these reports. I'm hearing from some uh, people that I know involved in contact tracing. One issue is people just don't pick up the phone. They just, you know, they, they think they're being contacted by the government. It's a government intrusion and they don't respond at all. Or they, you know, in some cases, they're actually you know, being verbally abusive of these people trying to notify them 
uh, that they've been exposed to an illness and to and to take steps to protect themselves and, and to protect others. So it's definitely had had an impact. Another area, I don't think we're going to have time to get into it in any detail, but about these digital tools for proximity monitoring and, and contact notification, and that similarly they they can be very effective using GPS or Bluetooth to to be able to let someone know when they've been in contact in close proximity to someone with COVID-19. And so so they can take take these steps. But again, because of some of the politicization and just distrust of government that people are worried about, there's very strong privacy protection with these tools, but, but the unfortunately the uptake and the use has been quite low. So it, it certainly had an effect. So some people feel like this is, again, the government trying to intrude, the government, you know, conspiracy theorists saying this is how the government's trying to control you. And, and so that's a real stigma you're facing with trying to institute broad contact tracing. What, what's going to need to happen now and into the future with future health issues to combat this? So <laughs> I think partly it's because we haven't had traditionally a robust public health presence in our lives. I mean, can you imagine if every community had a public health nurse they knew and trusted and was there for them when, you know, when they've been pregnant or had diabetes? Could have been very different. When COVID-19 came along, it would have been the same, you know, trusted person helping them, letting them know they've been exposed, helping them get tested and supporting them if, if they're missing work or missing school during quarantine. Just another example in Thailand, They've got a million village health workers. They're mostly women. That's about one for every 70 Thai citizens. And they've been a key part of public health in Thailand for four decades. So when COVID-19 came along, they were naturally very successfully helping manage contact tracing and uh, distribution of masks and vaccination campaigns. So I, I think in the future, we'll need to, you know, part of the solution will be rebuilding, building or rebuilding effective public health programs and with a competent workforce that's drawn from our local communities and has a positive impact on people's lives and they can earn their trust year in, year out when something comes along and we have, you know, a robust testing system, effective contact tracing system that people will engage in that. But that's that's really only part of the solution. This is this is really a, a one of these wicked problems. There's been so many cases even of local public health workers. They spent years serving their own communities where they grew up, and now they're being vilified by their by their neighbors and, and townspeople. So it, it's really tied to these broader problems of misinformation and disinformation and division and discord that I, I don't know how to solve. Do you agree with the observation that America's public health system at the local and state level is really in a state of crisis at the moment, two years into this pandemic, that the ranks are thinned, they're demoralized, they're under siege, their statutory authorities are being reduced by legislatures and by governors. They're being attacked in their communities as encroaching on personal liberties and the like when they sort of, when they talk about the different masking and mandates and restrictions. It's something we never anticipated, right? We never anticipated that the flip side of this crisis would be that sort of thing. Can you say a few words about that? Absolutely. It is in a crisis. The kinds of attacks that you're talking about are, are going on. Part of the problem is, as I mentioned, we, we don't actually know about, you know, month in and month out, what is the status in terms of the numbers of public health workers or how effective they're being in, 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 in contact tracing. We do have some 
you know, we know the numbers of COVID cases, we know about vaccination, but to really have a kind of robust, comprehensive data system, even to know how many actual public health workers we have, we don't have a handle on. The Times and others have, have done these kinds of ad hoc surveys and showing that some jurisdictions are actually worse off than when they started, that they, you know, despite the availability of funds, that they actually have fewer public health workers than they started with two years ago because of these kinds of attacks and vilification and challenges in their hiring capabilities. I wanted to follow up on your remarks about technology and mobile apps, mobile phones, use of apps and the like. Early on in the outbreak, you know, there was a lot of discussion, some of the big media companies social media were coming forward and, and, and announcing they were going to embark in partnerships and the White House was announcing this and the like. And there was a certain enthusiasm about, oh my gosh, maybe we can, maybe these tools can be used effectively to help track and trace and, and, and the like. And there were skeptics. So there were some very vocal skeptics at that time. I remember Tom Frieden being very vocal in his, his criticisms. Now you flash forward to today, you pick up the Wall Street Journal and there's a very long article about how in China, the use of these technologies, which were developed for contact tracing and enforcement within China, have now been carried forward into the penetrating people's lives, into controlling them and punishing them and monitoring them in all sorts of other So the Orwellian predictions about how technology could be misused are full and present today in China. On the other hand, when you look at the United States, it's complete disarray. There is nothing going on that I can see that amounts to any kind of coherent. I bought an iPhone 13 a couple months ago. It had a little widget on it to trace exposures. It started beeping with no instructions like, what am I supposed to do? Like, who am I supposed to call? Who does this connect to? I think that experience is, is, a, is a typical American experience. In other words, nobody knows how to use our phone or our apps. And no, there's no consensus around that. Are we just kind of left with, okay, we just can't do this. We're not going to have credentials, certificates of vaccinations, and we're not going to have monitoring. We're not going to permit monitoring through technology. Yeah, Steve, I, I think this has been emblematic of many areas of our response that you can imagine if we'd had something already in our pockets that we knew how it worked, we trusted it, we knew what the precautions were to protect our identity, and along comes COVID, it would be natural that we would say, you know, great, we have, here's another tool that we can use for this. But unfortunately, it's it's been, it's not a national solution. It's every state and, and in some cases, you know, workplaces and universities coming up with their own solutions. And there are examples in other countries and in some um, situations in this country where it's been quite effective. But if there's that distrust, if people aren't using it, and then if the testing is so far behind, it does have to be a, a way of, of the public health system getting the positive test result, feeding back into the system to identify the contact. So unfortunately, I think it's, it's just another one of these areas where we haven't had the tool in place at the beginning. And then it's, it's been fragmentation and lack of coordination in the implementation, but it remains a very potentially powerful tool. We could be using it for influenza. We could be using it for tuberculosis. It's, it's, you know, be nice to continue. The work is going on. And I think it, it should to really try to bring this into, into our pockets. It could be, you know, it may end up being a private sector solution. You know, it's one of these private sector apps that we all use. Peter, there's, 
there's been a lot of, of interesting innovation and some substantial gains in this area in America, even despite these glaring gaps that we've been talking about. There have been supplementals, both in the at the end of the Trump administration and into the Biden administration that set aside some significant resources that could contribute to contact tracing and testing, expanded testing. Obviously, we're seeing a big push on testing today in the United States, across the United States. There's also been a lot of activism by foundations, by institutions like the Broad Institute, trying to build networks that would benefit colleges and universities and other institutes in terms of putting in place data systems testing, contact tracing and the like. Eric Lander, now in the cabinet of the Biden administration as head of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, had a hand when he was at Broad Institute. In this, Raj Shaw at the Ford Foundation. So you have colleges, universities, you have alliances formed like the COVID Collaborative that have jumped into this. Gary Edson, John Bridgeland, say a bit about that phenomenon because it was the strength of civil society rising up in the midst of the 2020 crisis that pushed forward in that. And I think it had some lasting impacts. You're right. There's there are some very promising developments in the last year. The supplemental that you talked about, the, the Coronavirus Response and Relief Act, that was $19 billion that has funding for health departments for testing and contact tracing, including the workforce needs. And then the new administration, their national strategy and executive orders have really focused on these workforce issues and, and, and preparedness issues. They talked about a commitment to a, a public health workforce with 100,000 community-based workers for COVID-19 and then for other health burdens, as I mentioned, post-pandemic. And then, again, the, the rescue plan, the American Rescue Plan from March of last year has another $7.4 billion for public health workers for public health roles. So that, that all is very promising. The funding is there. And as you mentioned, there is a lot of, of strong civil society support of the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, resolve to Save Lives, led by the former CDC director, Tom Frieden. A lot of these public health advocacy and professional organizations, APHA, the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, the National Association of County and City Health Officials, and others that are really pushing on this need to rebuild this public health system, including the workforce, including the technology, having the data systems in place. The fax machine is, is literally a civil war era technology, and, we, and we've and we got to uh, rebuild this. The, the issue is it's so hard to build, uh, you know, build the boat while you're sailing it or the plane while you're flying it. And, and so I, I certainly hope we can take this opportunity to, and to put this, these pieces together so we're prepared we really to get COVID behind us, but then for, for whatever's coming next. Peter, is there something that gives you hope and optimism going forward? We always ask our guests that you know, as we get to a close, but, you know, what's giving you hope and optimism? You know, you've been really pushing this and, you know, trying to be proactive and positive. What What's keeping you optimistic these days? Thanks, Andrew. I guess I just want to, I want to really emphasize that contact tracing does work. There was a kind of a, a natural history experiment in England. They had this terrible error with their Excel spreadsheet that they were using in 2020 in about 16,000 cases, which was about 20% of all their cases, weren't immediately referred into the contact tracing system. And some researchers showed that that 
caused a great increase in COVID-19 in the areas where that happened. And it, there was an additional 125,000 infections and 1,500 COVID deaths because of that error. So, you know, it really is an effective system. And, and I hope what the new normal will be is we will be able to scale up. We'll have a, a public health workforce with federal resources and leadership, which have now been put in place. There'll be this coordination of the state and local authorities and this long-term funding. And then when once COVID-19 is under control, these same workers can reinvigorate other programs for, for controlling communicable diseases. They can work on cancer, on diabetes, for substance use disorders. Imagine if every everyone in every community had someone that had Narcan, Naloxone, and knew how to use it for drug overdoses. So they really, you know, will be a part of our, our national health security. And then whatever future health threats we have, such as new pandemics or, or climate change, so I think if we really focus on this, we have an opportunity to build a 21st century public health workforce. The funding's available. We just need the commitment and the follow through. Maybe we need like a, a public health workforce czar, someone who, who goes to work every day focusing on this as a deliverable. But I'm optimistic in seeing these can be very rewarding careers using technical skills and serving the community and, and seeing these concrete results every day and, and really big changes in health, uh, the community's health over the long term. I have mentoring calls almost every week with different trainees. They're interested in medicine and public health. There's a lot of interest in, in the next generation or next generations in public health in this kind of service. And for, for the last two years on these calls, I've been asking them, what are they going to tell their grandchildren that they did during the COVID-19 pandemic? And for some of them, I've referred them to contact tracing jobs. They're reporting back. They're getting great satisfaction doing this work, using their people skills, using their computer skills. Some of them have special language skills. They're connecting and helping people every day, all day long. And by the way, they're making pretty good pay doing this. So what gives me optimism and hope is that this next generation has these great skills interest in public health that really, you know, has got some great role models and, and really uh, have this interest. And I think we have the opportunity to really build back much, much better than what we have, than what we have currently. That is a really exciting scenario. I mean, along with having a public health czar, you know, I think we need a public health communications czar to really help communicate all of this and especially the good work that you're doing. So thank you very much for these answers today, Peter. Very helpful to Steve and I. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.